Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Point number one in your notes, the first blank right there, number one, is the word one. One fellowship. One fellowship. Let's read uh, Philippians chapter two. I'll read it out loud and you just kind of follow along. Verses one and two. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. Now, what's happening here is Paul is writing to the believers in Philippi, and he starts this passage with four questions. Now, he is not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answer. Like the questions, is there any encouragement from belonging in Christ? Well, of course, he would already know that. Is any comfort from his love? Absolutely. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? He's asking questions, not because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking questions to get us to push a little bit deeper and kind of examine what's in our heart. He is emphatically going forward and saying, hey, look at these four things real quick. Now, for any married men in the room, um, you have experienced this if you've been married longer than 10 minutes. Your wife at some point in time has asked you a question, but when she asked the question, she already knew the answer. She was asking you because she was trying to communicate something else. She was trying to get you to dig a little bit deeper. So, uh, for example, so if you're not married, this is a free marriage uh, uh, tip for you here. And um, if you're newly married and you're um, still getting in these fights about this, uh, let me, the, the one who's gone through much pain with this, um, who I, I was only because I was a knucklehead and didn't figure it out. No, my wife is great. It was me. It was my problem. <coughs> um, uh, I, I, I have, <laughs> she amen that one. Yes, hallelujah. Uh, thank you. Um, um, but the, uh, so, so let, me, let me give you an example of what this looks like. If your wife goes to the store, or well, multiple stores, to find the right outfit to go out with you on a date. And then, yeah, there we go. Okay, everybody, you're following me now. And then she comes home and spends an hour and a half getting ready. She, you know, she pulled out the nice soaps. You know what I mean? Like she pulled out the extra conditioner for the hair, you know, the stuff that, you know, for all the color and all that. And then, and then, um, then she got ready and did all the makeup and everything, put on the nice shoes. You know what I mean? Like the perfume and it's all, and she's been an hour and a half getting ready and she walks out and she says, does this outfit look nice? She is not asking you if the outfit looks nice. <laughs> That's not what she's asking you. She's asking you something deeper. She knows the outfit looks nice or she would not have picked it. If you look at her and go, I don't know if that print goes with that color. No, r- wrong. Run. That's it. That's over. Everything. You've just wasted hours of your life. Don't do that. I've made that mistake. You're also not supposed to go like this. Eh, yeah. Because she knows, it are, she already knows it looks good. She wants you to go a little bit deeper. She wants to probe what's in your heart. She's asking a question, but she already knows the answer. So your answer better be better than the answer she's got in her head. Yep, see, there we go. Yeah, all the women are with me right now. Yeah, 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 I learned this. 22 years of marriage, 23 in May. Woo! So, and it took me many of those to learn this lesson. 
here's what you're supposed to say. I saw that outfit when you brought it in here, and I thought, man, that looks nice. But then, when you put it on, I wish I had me an organ player back right now, like, whoa, yeah. When you put it on, the value of that outfit increased. There is no one in this world who could make that outfit look like that except for you. Because, baby, everything about what you just put on is awesome. And yes. And then what's she going to look at you and do? And be like, you're so stupid. And she's going to walk off. <laughs> right? And when she says, you're so stupid, that means good job. <laughs> because you didn't answer the question that was asked. You answered the question that was really being presented. You dug out what was in your heart, what was in there to pour it out. There you go. Right? Everybody understand that? Yes. Thank you for coming to RCC Phoenix. Let's pray. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Lesson learned. Um, so Paul is not married, and he knows this. He, know, he knows this principle. I don't know how he learned it. Maybe he had sisters or something. But Because uh, I didn't grow up with sisters. I called my brother my sister, and he's a halfway across the world because he can't punch me for saying that when we were little. But, um, you know, if he grew up with sisters, maybe he understood that. But he was not married, but what he does is he uses the same tactic. He's asking a question that he already knows the answer to for us to probe our hearts and see what's really there. The first question he asks is, is letter A in your notes. He says this, um, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Well, why is he asking? Does he want to know? I mean, he's in prison for the gospel. We've been going back and forth on this letter for 10 years. His church is 10 years old. He helped um, um, establish it. Is there any encouragement for belonging to Christ? Absolutely. Of course there is. And if I were to sit here and think about it, these next three bullet points in your notes, what's the first thing? What's the next encouragement, the benefit from giving our life to Christ? Number one, that first uh, bullet point, salvation. Saved from what? Eternity without him. Eternity in hell. Eternity away from his presence. Um, a lifetime without any real identified purpose. He saved us from these things. The second the encouragement from belonging to Christ is the Holy Spirit resides in us. If you are a believer, the moment you got saved and became a new creature, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. He is your peace. He is your comforter. He is your guide. He is your convictor. That is residing in you right now if you're a believer. The last, um, uh, the last one is um, we have access to God. We have access to God. You can go boldly to the throne of grace, which is where he sits, in your time of need and make your request known to him over and over again. You got access to the throne room of God to go and pray to him, and boom, your father responds. It may not be how you wanted to respond, but that's another message for another day. You have access to him, and he, he answers prayer. The second question he asks, letter B, is there any comfort from his love? Absolutely. He is love. He is the author of love. He is the essence of love. He's not, I'm not talking about the feeling. I'm talking about the substance of what love truly is. That is what God is. So is there any comfort that comes from perfect love and grace being give to, given to us? Absolutely. The first one, healing. Healing. And you think, well, man, I broke my arm or if I broke my toe or something, can he heal it? He can. He made you. 
but there's a greater healing that can happen in you. There can be relational healings. There can be emotional healings. There can be mental healings. There can be healings of, 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 of fractured um, um, families or friends that can be woven back together. He is the healer on all levels, on all accounts, not just your physical body. The second thing, God is close to the brokenhearted. I have watched this take place over the last week and a half. God is already close to you if you're a believer in Christ, but if you are brokenhearted, you are going through the worst uh, things that your, your life can ever throw at you or that you could ever imagine or worse than you imagine, then God can be even closer to you in those moments. He's close to the brokenhearted. Another comfort from his love, peace of mind and heart. You don't have to walk around every day. Oh my gosh, what is going to happen? What thing is going to trigger? Um, uh, uh, what is going to, uh, I mean, it's full of anxiety and uncertainty and fear. No, he gives peace of mind and heart. Because of his love, the comfort of his love, we have Jesus, salvation, the Holy Spirit, eternity with him, and all the other benefits. There is a great comfort in his love. The third thing he asks is a question. We're going to spend a little bit of time right here. Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? Now, when I read this, I was like, this sounds like that, those big churchy words. Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? When I was raised in church, the word fellowship was used for two things. Um, a big multi-purpose room. It was called a fellowship hall. We didn't call it a fellowship hall or a multi-purpose room because we had to find some churchy way to mess that word up too, right? Like we had to churchify something. So it was not like the multi-purpose room. It was a, the fellowship hall, right? Remember those days? Any of you old school guys you around here? Yeah, you're dating yourself if you're, if you're, if you're putting your hand up on that one. <clears throat> and the other thing we would say is we were going to have an after-church fellowship, which meant I got to stay longer at church than the two-and-a-half-hour service I just attended, to eat with the same people. Somebody who made mass food before there was Costco. They just went home and just boiled spaghetti or lasagna over and over, and then they brought it in, right? That was my idea of fellowship. But when he's saying, is there any fellowship together in the spirit, I have to look at that and go, eh, what does he mean? I want us to be a, a church that if we don't understand something that's being presented or that we read, we don't look at it and go, okay, I'll just keep going. <laughs> I'll just keep reading. I don't know what that one is, but cool, man. Yes, I'll answer yes because I think that's right, and we'll keep on moving. I want to stop and say, what does that mean? That is a tool for us. It doesn't mean you're stupid. doesn't mean you're ignorant. doesn't mean you're an idiot. It means you just don't know. We need to know. So when I looked at this, I said, okay, fellowship, what does that mean? The definition of fellowship, I'll put it in your notes. It's a friendly association, especially with people who share one's interest. So he's asking, is there a friendly association, especially with people who share one's interest in the spirit? So when I look at that word in the spirit, what I'm realizing is this, is that it's, he's asking about believers in Christ. If you, the spirit is in you and you're in the spirit, you are a believer in Jesus. So he's saying, is there any friendly association with people who share one's interest who are believers? What is our singular interest as a believer in Christ? Serving him, loving others, and loving people. That's what our singular interest is. Next line in your notes. 
we have to purposely build relationships with those in our local church body. Most people kind of get the fellow only part of it, but not the fellowship. And here's what I mean. Most people in our Western culture church, they come and attend the service or the gathering. They attend that on Sundays and they associate with someone else because they came to the same place. There is no friendly or relational association. It's just like, oh, you go to that church too? Cool, man. And then see you next week. And then we all bounce and then go our separate ways. That is not a friendly association. How do I know that? Because there are 1,200 people that work in my building in my office at Corporate America. We haven't been there because of the COVID thing for more than a year. But whenever I was going there, there was 1,200 people in that three-story building. And because we worked there, we had an association, but no relationship unless we branched out and had to work together and find a way to do it. How do I know there's no relationship? Because in the more than nine years that I've worked there, people retire and everyone re and they send out an email and people reply with that email going, oh man, hope you're having a great retirement. Oh man, good luck on your next adventure. Oh, da, da, da. Keep in touch. Oh yeah, it's like an old yearbook. No one does that. There is only an association, no relational association. There's no developed relationship between the people at that job. And unfortunately, that attitude has spilled over into the American westernized culture um, impact, the cultural impact on our churches. Because we would like to come in. Let me slide in. Hey, man. Hey, man. High five. How was your week? Cool, man. See you next week and go. And feel like, okay, I did it. I get to the car, I'm like, I'm at beads of sweat. Like, oh, I talked to somebody. But there's no, there's association, but there's no relationship. Well, Matt, can I just come? You could. You could and still go to heaven. You could. But there is a benefit that has given to all of us as believers in Christ, to not just be associated because we happen to walk in the same building and hear the same message and sing the same songs with the same group of people, there is a relationship that's available to us that God designed for you and for me and for you and you to all cross paths and strengthen each other. How do I know that? Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. I don't know if you know this, but Solomon, the wisest man not named Jesus ever to live and walk the earth, wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Listen to what the wisest man who ever walked the earth said. <clears throat> Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. We could stop right there. I'm not talking about financial success. I'm not talking about um, um, some kind of uh, material success. I'm talking about you succeeding through the struggles of life. Let me take you to the Lord. Let me pray for you. Let me point you to him, and we will find the true version of success, not what our culture applauds and pats us on the back when we hit a certain milestone. We get the gold watch. Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people laying close to each other can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? 
A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. When you go through the roughest moments of your life, I think this is a human condition, but I'll speak to our Western culture condition because that's where all of us primarily have been raised and lived most of our, uh, most of our existence. When we go through hard times, we, are, we feel the need to isolate. I'm struggling. I have a, a hardship. Something wrong is happening here in my life or with my friends or on a relational level or my family or something. And when we do that, we go, I don't want to go somewhere and be seen like this. And we withdraw and try to close up. That is the exact recipe that Solomon tells us is going to lead to destruction. Maybe not immediately, but when you isolate, you are easier to pick off. You are easier to have those thoughts that are running through your head all the time from the enemy and from your fear and from your flesh and this combative thing that's going on inside of you, the constant war in your heart and in your spirit. That thing right there, when you, you are strengthened to win that war and live more like scripture and for the Lord and go to him when you are together, not just in a hey, how are you association, but in a real relational connection with other believers well Matt you're talking to me out of the Old Testament that doesn't talk to me about the the the, the people who are you know Gentile believers here in the church okay so let's take that principle and now let's bring it forward to the New Testament Hebrews 10 24 to 25 let us believers in Christ think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now the day of his return is drawing near. Okay, Matt, I totally get it. This is my I got to come to church all the time message. No, no. There is no brownie point that can be earned in heaven because you show up and sit here every week and everyone sees you. Hey, yep, yep, yep. I, I got my attendance check mark in heaven. Okay, cool. I'm going to go. He's not talking about walking in the building. He's talking about Sergio. I know him. He knows me. I know Ryan. <clears throat> Melinda knows Nina. And we're all crossing paths here to where we go, man, how are you? I know you had this struggle last, this past week. I called you on Wednesday. Oh, my gosh, not a church day. I called you on a day that we don't have to meet here in this, in this building, and I'm checking up on you. I've been praying for you this week. How are you doing? I don't know about you, but in isolation, that don't happen for me. The, the, the instruction here is not for, um, if you don't go into the church, I'm going to paddle your behind, little boy. Get your butt in church. The, 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 what it's leading us to here, the principle here, is there is strength in the body of Christ and in other believers when you have a real relational association, when we are fellowshipping together. This has been how the church has operated all the way from the beginning. The church was established in Acts chapter 2 right after the Holy Spirit comes. If you don't know what that story is, you can go read it later this week. 
<clears throat> and the Holy Spirit descends on people in the upper room. They're speaking in other languages. Um, it looks like, uh, it's kind of like a, a, what they perceive to look like little, little patches of fire or cloven tongues as a fire for the old King James folks. You know, it looks like a patch of fire on people's heads. And then Peter walks downstairs and talks to the crowd that's gathered around this room, and he preaches the gospel of Christ, and 3,000 people get saved. <clears throat> I would hear that story as a kid and be like, that's awesome. And then my, 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 you know, my super detailed you know, mind starts running forward and goes, what did they do when they left the service? There's no Bible for them that's still, I mean, it's barely being written. All they have is the Old Testament, and God just came, Jesus just came and preached to them and said, hey, I've made all that null and void. I am your way forward. There's no scripture. What do they do? Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Here's what they did. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals. That's my, I would have put that one first, but that's just me, <clears throat> including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity." All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their those who were being saved. There is a difference between getting saved and being added to the fellowship. You can see the two different actions there right at the end of that. The Lord added to the fellowship the people who were saved. They got to get saved and they're added to this fellowship, this relationship. <clears throat> Now, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a really literal-minded person, you could look at this, and this literally happened, and you could say, oh, my goodness, are you telling me to sell everything I have, my house, my car, my washing machine, my vans, my whatever your favorite thing is, my PS, whatever you're on now, five, four, five, PS5, thank you. <clears throat> Ask the younger ones for that one. Thank you. Uh, PS5, I got to sell all this stuff, and I got to live in a commune with all these people right here? What is happening? No. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is, this, this is describing that a change of heart happened at the beginning of the church. Did they really do this? Absolutely. Are we supposed to participate in these same principles? Yes. Because when we come in relational fellowship with each other and that fellowship with Christ drives us to have fellowship with the people around us in our local congregation, our body of believers, our fellowship of like-minded Christians, what it does is it reprioritizes everything in our life. Look at what the believers did. The next little seven little bullet points there for you here in our notes. We'll, we'll, we'll hit them quick. The believers, the, the, the believers met in a single place, much like we're doing right now. They left their homes, they left where they were, and they all came and gathered at a single location. The next line, they shared with each other. They shared with each other. When I say each other, I'm talking about other believers. 
The third bullet, they shared with those in need. Some of the believers were in need, and then some of the non-believers were in need, and they used that as a way to represent Christ to the non-believers. They shared with those in need. The next one, they worshiped together. They worshiped together, just like we did tonight. They had meals together, which we should do after this service is done, because I'm a foodie. The next one, they were generous. They were generous. And the last one, they enjoyed the goodwill of each other. They enjoyed the goodwill of each other. That means that every person who was in a relationship fellowship, um, a relational style fellowship in their gathering of believers, they had goodwill towards them. And what happens? They enjoyed it. It brought them joy. It brought them happiness. It brought them hope because you're not in this thing alone. The deeper you roll, the more confident you are. <clears throat> Let me tell you, let me give you an example of that. When I went to high school, I had no family members that went to high school with me. So when there were riots at my school, which there were, I had nobody on my side. It was me against the world, unless I saw somebody that I rode the bus with. I'm like, bro, it's me and you. If it goes down, it's just me and you. What's your name again? Like, <laughs> I need to know who to call out to help for. <clears throat> right. My brother, yeah, I have my brother, but he was in middle school. He was that far behind me. So I'm, I, I was like, oh my goodness, this is nuts. My wife went to school with 217 cousins at the same place. <clears throat> she walks through the hallways and got a little swagger. Huh? Huh? Say something to me and it's over for you. Why? Because the deeper you roll, the more confidence you got. You got backup. You got people who are praying for you. You got people who are checking on you. You got people when you fall, you are, you are, they're, they're picking you up. They got people when you're hurt. They don't know how to help you, but they can at least get you to the one who knows how to have that help. There has to be a relational fellowship with the people in, that come here to this church. It doesn't matter if it's 50 people or 550 people. We have to pursue that relationship with each other. You might sit in this room and go, well, you're talking about what can I do for everybody else and kind of what do I bring to the table, and I don't do much. I sit at a cubicle. Me too. My day is kind of boring. Me too. I stare at a screen and look at Excel spreadsheets and send emails. Me too. I'm not real sure uh, that I have anything really great that I can contribute. So that's why I kind of keep my distance. I just don't want to be a taker, man. I want to be a giver. And I don't give really a whole lot because I don't have a whole lot to do. <clears throat> Let me read you a story of a guy that I ran across this week. <clears throat> never heard of this before. If you have, then just enjoy the replay. But I never heard of a man named Charles Plum. He was in the U.S. Navy, <clears throat> and he was a fighter jet pilot um, in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, 75 combat missions in the enemy territory, 
his plane was finally hit and destroyed by a surface-to-air missile while he was flying it. He ejected and parachuted into the enemy's hands, but when he came down, even though he was physically safe, he came down behind enemy lines, and when he was captured by the, the Vietnamese army, he spent six years in a communist Vietnamese prison camp. <clears throat> six years. He stayed there until the war was finally over. He was, he was uh, rescued and released so he's been out of sight for six years. Nobody knows if he's alive or where he's at. They know his plane blew up. They thought maybe his, uh, his chute ejected. No one knows if he's alive or dead. And so for six years, there's nothing. He's eventually rescued. He's brought back. He, he takes a long time to kind of, or a, a span of time to get nursed back to health. And he finally feels up to going out one night with his wife to catch some dinner. While he's at dinner, there's this guy who's across the, the next table from him just eyeballing him, just looking at him, and just constantly, and Charles Plum is like, what is this guy's deal? And finally, the guy gets up and walks over from the table and says, uh, sorry to bug you, but your last name is Plum, isn't it? And he goes, yeah, do I know you? And he says, uh, you flew fighter jet, uh, you were a fighter jet pilot, and you flew fighter jet missions in Vietnam, and your plane was shot down. And you flew off the, the aircraft carrier called the Kitty Hawk. And Plum is just shocked. He's stunned. He's like, uh, yeah. How do you know that? Do I, I mean, do I know you? And he goes, I packed your parachute. And Plum was just stunned, like, what? Like, it was a stun, gratitude, surprise, all of that. And the man went back to his table and pumped his fist and said, guess it worked. The parachute worked. And he went back and sat down. Plum called out to him and said, it did work, and if it hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. Charles went home that night, and he couldn't sleep. He tells this story in some of his motivational talks that he does today in different schools and businesses around the country, but he couldn't sleep, and he said, I kept wondering what that man would have looked like in a Navy uniform, a white hat, a bib in the back, bell-bottom trousers. I wonder how many times I might have seen him and not even said, good morning, how are you, or anything, because you see, I was a fighter pilot, and he was just a soldier. Plum said that he thought for a long time about how many man hours this nameless guy spent at a long wooden table in the bowels of a ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the silks of each suit, holding in his hands each time the fate of someone he didn't know. The truth is, 
most of the parachutes that man packed were never deployed. The majority of them were never deployed. But the few times they were, they had to work. I don't want any one of us to walk in this building and go, or wherever we're gathering, and say, what I do is just this little thing that doesn't get used very much, and it doesn't matter. No. Because the once or twice that it needs to be used, it needs to be deployed correctly. You cannot throw off the thing that you have and that you devalue because what's happening is you're keeping it from the person who needs it, who God brought to this place so that can be exchanged, that we can be in relational, friendly association with other believers. We can be in fellowship. And when you withhold what you have, you're putting everyone else at a detriment, even if it's something that's not used very often. 2020 was uh, quite a year, right? Like everyone had to stay home and like couldn't go nowhere and everybody, you know, like it was just crazy. We're all locked down and people started doing these challenges online. And so I found this challenge that people did and um, the, somebody said, I want to see who can do the longest handstand because this record doesn't exist in Guinness Book of World Records, believe it or not. I just want to see it. So he told everybody to do a handstand, film your handstand, put a timer on it, and the longest one's going to win, you know, whatever amount of money or whatever. And so they did this challenge last year, more than a half million views on YouTube when I saw it, the, uh, saw it earlier this week. And the guy who won was a guy named Gordon Lindsay. And anybody want to guess how long he did a handstand for? 17 minutes and 39 seconds. He put his laptop in front of him so he could catch like a like like a like a like a sitcom show or something. He's standing on his like his hands, and he's like got his legs up in the air. And then the, he starts to lose his balance, so he bends his legs all the way back. Like like my back hurt watching the guy. Like I've even tried that. That your boy would be like guaranteed to be in the chiropractor's office every day for the next month. Like I was just like, ooh, that's that. Uh uh-uh, uh, I can't do that. You win, bro. He's been over backwards, and I, I'm like, man, this guy, this is awesome. And everybody celebrates 17 minutes and 39 seconds. I can't do that for 17 seconds. He went 17 minutes, almost 18. And everybody applauds. Why? Because he's doing something with his hands that they're not designed to do. Almost every one of you, unless there's a physical condition that you have, that would prevent you from doing this. I guarantee almost everybody in this room has stood up on their feet for 17 minutes and 39 seconds and didn't, today and didn't think twice about it. If you went to the Walmart, you definitely stood for 17 minutes and 39 seconds to walk in there and get yourself and stand in line and come back out. I promise you. No one applauded that. Why? Because that's how your feet are supposed to work. When you withhold the gift from the fellowship that God has given you to bless those around you, you're forcing someone to operate in a way they're not designed to operate. You're telling them, stand on your hands for 18 minutes, and it might work for 17 minutes. 
We all might applaud and be like, bro, that's not even your gift, and you're plugging a hole that, that, that you're not even designed to do, so thank you for standing on your hands for 17 minutes, but the person who's supposed to be standing there on their feet is, I don't want to be involved. When you withhold it, you're not only robbing yourself of an opportunity to help somebody else, you are forcing someone else who's willing to operate in a way that they're not designed to operate. They may be using their gift in a way that to, to, I mean, I guess we can use my hands to try to stand up, but it's not going to last very long. Don't withhold it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you're a pilot, fly the plane. If you're a mechanic, repair the engine. If you're a computer nerd, then build the navigation software. If you are, um, if you, are a, you have physical strength and labor, then clear the runway. If you're an organizer and someone who can, can put things in and, and see how it's supposed to be and put things in the correct positions, then work in the control tower. If you have the gift of analysis, then man the radar. If all you do is fold things really nice, pack the parachutes. Whatever it is that you do, bring it to the fellowship of other believers. Now, let me stop right here and say something, because I felt like I need to. The goal is, not, is to bless each other when we're in need and share the abundance the goal is not to save a few bucks by manipulating your Christian brother and sister to do what they do as a job for you so you don't got to pay for it. That's not the goal. The goal is if, my, if, if I need my brakes done and I'm going to take it down to, you know, double eight, bram, bram, MCO. I don't even know if that's around anymore. I just had that just hit me right real quick. Amco, right? Um, if I had to go there and get my brakes done, and I'm already going to pay for it, go pay for it. Don't call, oh, I think there's a guy in the church who can fix my brakes for nothing. I'll give him a pizza and a, pat on the, and a pat on the back when he goes out and be like, thanks, brother, you blessed me. No, 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 don't do that. If your neighbor is a single mother who has three kids and her car broke down and her brakes need to be fixed, and you know she's struggling paycheck to paycheck, then that's the point where you get together with your brother in Christ that you're in relationship with and go, I'll buy the brakes if you can put them on and we'll just go bless this lady. That's the fellowship of believers giving in action. Don't manipulate each other. That's not the goodwill. That's not the goodwill of the believers that are in Christ. I put a reflection question for this one in your notes because we spent so much time on it and that's this. Are we participating in our local fellowship of believers? And you should have a greater understanding of how to answer that question after what we just talked about. The fourth question that Paul asks is this. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Real easy. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. He's not asking them, hey, are you tenderhearted or are you compassionate? He's saying you already should be because what has been, what's been changed in you as a believer in Christ makes your heart from a heart of stone to one that is soft and tender to the things of God. He asked these, he asked these um, 
these four questions. And then after he asks the questions, he makes a statement. It's number two in your notes. One purpose. Number two is one purpose. He makes the statement after he asks these four questions. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. This little verse right here, I think it's the second verse or that last line of that, that passage we read earlier. This one really bugged me. You might say, why did that bug you? It's only because of this statement. Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. That's going to be tough for me to do. I got disagreements about scripture, about what it, the meaning of it is, the intention of it, the context. I got disagreements with people, how the believers who say, I'm living my life, but I'm going to do this. I'm like, it doesn't really line up with the scripture and all that kind of stuff. I got disagreements with people. This is a natural thing. If you've never had a disagreement with anyone, you're, um, you're, you are um, not being truthful with yourself. So I had to dig a little bit deeper, and I found a great, I found a, a, an, an older commentary by a man named Adam Clark. And he broke apart all the Greek and the, you know, how this, all the words went together. And I'm like, my head hurts from that. I'm not going to be able to communicate to that. So just let me give you his summary of what that passage about wholeheartedly agreeing with each other means. Ready? It's in your notes. Being perfectly agreed in laboring to promote the honor of your master, of one mind being constantly intent upon this great subject and keeping your eye fixed upon it and all you say, do, or intend. Every single one of you has a different gift, a different life, a set of life experiences, and a different perspective that you bring to the fellowship of believers. You may not agree about every single subject, and that is not a qualification to still be in good relationship and show goodwill to someone else. What it does mean is that our goal, that we are perfectly aligned and agreeing upon bringing honor to the name of Jesus Christ. We are promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That our minds and our actions and our intent is to bring honor and fame. And well, not fame, but I mean, because uh, how can you be more famous than God? <laughs> bring honor and glory to God, keeping our eyes fixed upon it and all we say, we do, and intend. That's a hard one because it deals with our motives and the intentions of our heart. If we are going to be together, we're going to wholeheartedly agree that our main purpose, loving God, loving each other, and loving the lost, and everything points back to him. And how that's lived out is unique to the situation that every person finds themselves in. Point number three. Adopting Christ's attitude. Adopting Christ's attitude. 
we're gonna, I'm going to read out loud Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. You can just kind of quietly read along in with, with me in the notes, okay? After he makes this statement about being together, he describes how to do it. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but make an interest in others as well. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What was that attitude? He tells us. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is saying to us, This is Jesus's attitude, and we are supposed to take that attitude on for ourselves. What was that attitude? Next line in your notes. Jesus set aside his divine right as the ruler of the universe and served others. Jesus could have walked into the earth and said, Bam, I'm here. Everybody come and kneel down now. But he comes in the humble position of a child, lives the entire life, and builds relationships and fellowship with 12 disciples. He examples the fellowship, the relational association that we're supposed to have together. And in doing that, he examples to us, it doesn't matter what position you have, what position you've been given, what position that you've earned. It's time for us to look at, even though you have the right to those things, fine, to leave that and step down and serve others. That is the attitude we're supposed to be taking from Jesus. We are never too important to serve other people. We will not ever be promoted to the place where Jesus sits, right? But there are principles here that Paul wants us to emulate. Throw off the things that we might have the quote-unquote right to. Serve everyone we can, believers and non-believers. Humble ourselves and obey God's direction. You could look at this with a, um, an American mind and go, ooh, Jesus did all these things. And then that last verse said, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name. So if I do all of this, God's going to honor me and elevate me and put me up here? No. The greatest elevation and honor that God is going to give us as believers is having us live with him for eternity. 
We all want it here. We all want it right now. I listened to a preacher a long time ago, and I, I followed his method for a little while where he said, you can have it both. You can have it here, and you can have it there. Fine. But my goal was never to have it there when I followed that train of thought. My goal was to have it now to show off, hey, look at what Jesus will do for you. And then hopefully people would follow me, and then I'd get some reward there too. The priority was completely wrong. The greatest honor we can have is to be with Jesus for eternity.